welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaeye. My guest this week is Emmy Award-winning journalist and CNN's senior crime and justice correspondent, Shimon Procupes. Shimon has had an incredible career covering crime and justice for CNN, first in Washington, D.C., and more recently based in New York, though he spends much of his time traveling around the country to cover the major stories. Over the last eight months, he's been covering one story more than any other, the horrific mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Eight months later, there remain unanswered questions about the shooting and the police response to it, questions that Shimon has been working tirelessly to answer. Shimon, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Let's start with Uvalde, a story that you have really been covering, I think, better than any other uh, reporter in the last eight months. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for doing this. It's an important story and it continues to be an important story and for us to continue to cover it uh, because so much went wrong on that day. And certainly for me personally, as someone who's covered law enforcement my whole career and, and really has been around law enforcement my whole life, this was something that was so important to me. Uh, and, and I'm just fortunate in so many ways to be able to continue to report out the story and kind of work with our team here and CNN, of course, to get to the truth, really, to the bottom of what happened. And when you think of that day back on May 24th, you know, it was one of these days where when we got word of the shooting, of course, this was a horrific, horrific situation. On May 24th, a gunman from the area living in Uvalde walks into this school, walks through a door that should have been locked, gets inside the classroom uh, with an AR-15 and kills 19 students and two teachers stays inside that classroom for 77 minutes before police eventually break in, open the door, go inside and kill him. And really the question throughout this since that day has been, why was the gunman inside that classroom for so long? Why was he allowed to stay inside that classroom for so long? Why is it that police didn't go in sooner? And of course, we've learned so much since that day and, you know, the pain that the families have been going through and, and certainly that community demanding some of these answers and wanting to know what happened. And, and still, we really don't have a full, full, complete story yet. Do you remember how you got the news at the time? Did you immediately travel down to Texas to cover the story for CNN? So it was a couple of days after the Buffalo supermarket shooting. I just I was back in town. So tops in Buffalo happens. And I actually had a couple of days off because my grandmother died during while I was covering tops. Uh, my grandmother died mm-hmm. and I left Buffalo um, to deal to deal with that. And then I had a couple of days off and it was a Tuesday. Um, I actually was at the gym and I remember one of the managers here calling me say, hey, it's been a couple of hours. There's a shooting. We're starting to get indications that this could be really bad. And can you just start preparing and start getting ready uh, to work on this? And then a short time after that, the governor came out and made his statement and revealing that 17 were dead. And then within a few hours, I was on a plane on my way to Texas and got in that night. And what's it like when you get those kind of calls? Because I think at a certain point, you must be thinking, all right, I'm going to be spending the next couple of days, next week, next weeks, maybe even of my life living in a place 
that I've never been covering a horrific tragedy. And, and as you know, you, you know, at the time you had gotten two in that one week. The first, the initial response is always, is always not a, you know, gosh, not again. Right. I can't right. believe this is happening again. And the goal at that point for me is just to get home and to get my stuff together and mm-hmm. get going. I don't have a go bag. Some, a lot of people are my colleagues, a lot of, reporters to do this and travel for a living and they have go bags and they're ready to go. I don't, I'm just, I generally like to just pack depending on where I'm going. And I like to give myself some time and you know, whatever you figure it out. Mm -hmm. I just, I got to my apartment and, you know, just try to grab whatever I could and and put it in the bag because I didn't have a lot of time to get to catch the next flight. It, It was a very short window to make the next flight. The what other kind of thing stuff for, are you are you grabbing? Sorry. So depend. So it was summer. It was so hot. Right. So you know, first thing I do is I look at the temperature in in the area, and then it, it was it was hot. It was May in Texas. So I just grabbed a bunch of t shirts, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of pairs of uh, pants. You know, obviously other things just to sort of get me through a couple of days. So t right. shirts, a couple of like a pair of jeans, some sneakers. The other thing for me. I, is exercise is an important part of my life and Mm -hmm. and from both a mental and obviously physical, but more from, from a mental point of view kind of, and and mentally what exercise does for me in my life um, is very important. And um, so I tend to try to pack exercise clothes more than anything else, just so that I can try in some way, get some workouts in while I'm on the road. Because it's important, right? Mentally, there's got to be some outlet, especially covering this stuff. So you throw everything in the back. But the other thing that makes, for me, what's very calm, also what, because I'm a reporter at heart, in the middle of doing all this, I'm on the phone trying to find out what's going on, calling sources. And it gets very, um, it's hard because you start to get, like the adrenaline is pumping and then I get like, I get anxiety and I get a little stressed because I'm trying to let, get information while I'm trying to get myself together Catch to get flight. to there. Yeah. And it's trying to figure out like what's more important. Was it like, I just need to get to the airport and then right. I can figure everything out. And, you know, I think when you're, whenever you're covering crime and especially, you know, you've, you've had to, unfortunately you've had to cover a lot of mass shootings in the last couple of years. And I was thinking when I was uh, reading your coverage recently, you know, I used to cover, crime uh, in New York at the Daily News. And one thing that struck me was how desensitized some of the longtime beat reporters and photographers, particularly, who've been doing this work since like the 90s, how desensitized they were to violence, simply because they were exposed to it regularly over the course of years and years. Do you feel desensitized at all? Do you feel like you've changed to any extent covering these kinds of stories for so long? I think so. Um, I think it's fair to say that I, I do feel that way. It doesn't affect me in the moment. It doesn't affect me when all this tragedy is going on around me and, and the pain that people are suffering. I don't get to witness some of that. And maybe that's why I, it's kind of your, I have a job to do. And I just, yeah, of course it, I am feeling the pain, uh, when I get certain pieces of information, and wondering what these families are going through but you do it 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 hits you differently and at different times but in the moment when you're working and gathering information and on air and dealing with getting the story and reporting sometimes you can forget what this is really about and what 
is important. And that, of course, is the families and, and the people who are suffering and, and the community that is suffering. Right. And it's important not to. And sometimes you just have to kind of take a step back and understand that. Um, but yeah, you certainly get desensitized, not because I'm some like cold person and like I don't care. Mm. It's just, it's horrible because I've covered so many of these now. And I, I don't know, I care very much about what I do and I care very much about the information and the people that are involved in it. But it, it is true that you start to lose some of the, I, I guess, sensitivity of how you feel uh, learning that 19 people uh, have died. Right. I will say to you, the one thing that was very different in Uvalde that happened to me, because usually I'm the information guy. I go in, I do these live shots, and I'm like providing the viewers information, and my job is to get the information. It was very different in Uvalde. Um, it's also the first time that I have covered a school shooting. And what I found was that at night was really hard for me, very difficult at times emotionally, because the parents, as they started coming to the live shot location, which was the school, mm. and, and laying flowers down and other community members and kids, seeing a lot of kids, that really started to affect me. Um, so even though there you, you have a focus and you have a job, and the job is to sort of get the information and, and stay composed and try to do your best to give the information, um, at times I did find myself kind of getting emotional or kind of almost losing it at seeing these kids and seeing these family members. And this was early on, but you definitely do. I think I have found that you do lose some, some of that. And, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, I, I'm sure it's an experience that's very similar to the way doctors in an ER feel, yes. you know, just experiencing so much, so many victims, so many trauma after a while, you know, you, you can still have empathy, but it, it get, you get to a point where you just become desensitized by all the the pain. Now, this shooting, you know, aside from uh, happening in a school and being the second uh, deadliest school shooting in American history, uh, another thing that that makes it different from other mass shootings that I, I think you've covered is that it, it can there continues to be a lot of fallout from the story, and that is mainly because of the way police responded to it and the way that uh, officials have. I think it's probably safe to say misled about the response to the shooting. Right. Could you could you explain the fallout from the shooting and, and when you really realized that this one was different from the others and how the police responded to it? Right. Well, the, the fallout started happening almost, to me, immediately when we hit the ground and we just couldn't get basic questions. Uh, of course, that question of why did it take so long for officers to go inside the classroom. Right. And when we were on the ground, so the minute I felt that something was wrong from the minute I, I, I probably started getting information from sources on this who really? really couldn't give me a clear indication of what happened. And some of it is because Uvalde is remote and I get that and I understand it takes time for people to get information for officials to get information but the problem was we were hours and hours into this it was the evening by the time i was trying to get information and everyone was kind of giving me a different story about what happened and i was just was like and the pol I, it didn't make any sense to me and then the police were not 
really giving any information. So, of course, I was very suspicious almost immediately. And then when we got on the ground and we got to the scene, you know, nothing was happening. And it wasn't until the police started talking, the Texas, the state police, the Texas DPS, Department of Public Safety, they started giving us a weird story and nothing was adding up and they wouldn't give us a timeline of things. And they kept saying, well, you know, the cops did the best they could. And they were painting the officers in this heroic light and how they could have been much worse and they did everything they could, but yet no one could tell us exactly how long the gunman was in the classroom. And we started getting indications that he was in there for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And those were the immediate questions because active shooter training, based on everything I know from covering so many of these shootings, you go in, you don't take your time. Every second is precious and you just go, no matter what, you just go towards the gunfire, you go towards the gunman and you, and you take him out. And it just seemed very apparent to me that that did not happen in this case. And the more the police tried to defend themselves, the more for me, it was raising all kinds of red flags and the, the inability to get some very specific information that should have been easy to get, we weren't able to get. And so all of that really started raising a lot of suspicion to me. And I started raising these questions internally. On air, you just, you know, I, I'm a very careful reporter and I do not want to go on air and make accusations or make any kind of assumptions, especially on a situation like this. But internally, certainly to my bosses and, and to the folks here, I was raising all kinds of questions and, and issues and saying something is not adding up here. Something is not adding up here. And then now, you know, obviously we know that is the case. You had a new report concerning unearthed comments to investigators by the Uvalde school police chief, who's now been fired. And this was the morning after the shooting. He was trying to explain his decisions that day. Tell us about that new bit of uh, commentary that we have now from the Uvalde so school police I, chief. I, this is a key piece of information that we have been working on and, and finally able to report and, and publish the entire interview that he did. This is Chief Pete Arredondo at the school police. Um, he's one of the first chiefs on scene. He's running the small police department, the school police department. Um, his comments to, to investigators the next morning, this is not even 24 hours after the shooting, nine o'clock in the morning, the next day they question him, the FBI and the Texas and a Texas Ranger asked him questions about what he did, should have right away to investigators raised red flags and concern that protocol and procedure was not followed. And that they went for days defending their actions, knowing what he said, to me, has just been astonishing. And what he describes there is when he gets there and he's giving all kinds of reasons and excuses for why he didn't go into the classroom. And his concern was more about kids and people who are not inside that classroom because he assumed that everyone in that classroom was likely dead. And therefore, there was no need in his mind to go into that classroom. It was more important to save the people around that classroom who really weren't facing the same threat. Of course, there's a threat of anyone around that area, but the people inside that classroom were the ones facing the most significant threat. And the fact that they didn't go after that, and he makes it very clear that they didn't, and he gives excuses for why, and he ex explains why he didn't 
do it. One of those being that he assumed there were people already dead in that classroom and he was trying to save the people outside of that classroom. The other thing that we learned, there are other two very important pieces of information in that, is that, number one, he hears what he thinks is the gunman reloading. And that's a very important piece of information because that indicates, number one, that he's ready to fire again. The gunman is probably preparing to fire again. But the other thing is that it's significant because it, it would have given those officers some time couple of seconds, whatever, to get inside that classroom. Had they heard that, maybe had they gone in, they could have gone in in those moments when they hear that, who knows what would have happened. But that should have indicated to them that it was time to go in. It was a good time to go in. The other key piece of information we learned is that he never tried to open the door, just simply opened the door. He assumed that the door was locked and that he needed a key. But what we've learned from sources and, and even from the Texas Department of Public Safety is that a key was never needed. All they simply had to do was try to open the door. And we are learning that that never happened. No one ever just went up to the door to see if they could open it without a key. It's wild. You know, I was watching your CNN report on his comments the next day, and you guys paired it with footage of Arredondo and uh, other police inside the school. And you can see him repeatedly telling officers to stand down. He's on the phone and he's sort of pacing around. And my feelings watching it oscillated between fury that at this guy for, for doing nothing and for telling the, the police there who are heavily armed to do nothing. Also a tiny bit of sympathy, I, I hesitate to say, because, you know, when you're watching this guy, he clearly has no idea what he's doing. It almost looks like he's in a state of panic. How do you feel about the decisions he made that day? Do you ever find yourself feeling sympathy for him? Or was what he did just so truly egregious that he deserves no sympathy? Um, I honestly have no sympathy for him. I, I had one interaction with him when I tried to question him uh, a couple of days after. And I, ha I found him to sort of not take what happened seriously and i hate to say that because i'm you know i hate to say that but i i just find that i don't think he has ever understood what happened here and how screwed up all of this was right. and instead has throughout this wanted to defend himself mm -hmm. and defend his actions and that's fine but he didn't follow all the proper procedures and and he has tried to hide behind the family's mourning and I'll talk when they finally stop mourning. He did speak to the Texas Tribune eventually, but it was a very controlled interview through his lawyer and he made excuses for his radio dropping and not wanting to pick it up or, you know, he made all kinds of excuses for what, for what happened. I, I just, I, I never have sensed that there was any remorse on his part. I never sensed that there was any kind of, I, I, to me, it's just he doesn't come off as uh, compassionate, and right. he he's a politician in some ways. You know, he was a, he ran for office there for city council. He was elected, and I, I always found him to be very almost political and trying to be a politician. And even in this interview with investigators, he's making jokes. This is the morning after nineteen. Right. You know, nineteen kids are dead, and he's sitting there making jokes with these investigators, but also trying to thank them for what they, you know, for being there and helping them and also making excuses and just, I don't know. I just, for me, I've never 
maybe this is how, you know, we've, we've talked about this internally, my team and I, that maybe this is just the way he is dealing with the grief. coping with it. Yeah. Coping with it. Right. Um, I hope so because I, I hope so, but I, I, I have not, I have found it very difficult to have any kind of sympathy for him. I have had a lot of sympathy for a lot of the officers who were there that day. Mm. It's horrific what they went through. And, and a lot of it um, will never probably see the, the light of day, but what they have, what they saw and what they witnessed. I mean, I've listened to interviews with officers who were hysterical, like crying with investigators as they were recounting what they saw and some wishing they could have done more, wishing they could have gone in sooner. I mean, I can only imagine the next day knowing what they knew and then, and, and maybe, you know, some of them followed leadership in, in taking, you know, basically no action. Um, Correct. That, would be, that would be a hard thing to live with. Now he has been fired. Is there further, will there be further repercussions for the response to that, to the shooting? What is sure. the status of any investigations? So the, the district attorney in Uvalde is claim, claims that she's investigating mm-hmm. and pursuing potential criminal charges. She's not talked why about who say, or what. Why do you say claims? Is there is there Okay, well, there? because there's, <laughs> yes, there is, because she is not being very open about anything that she's doing. And I understand as mm-hmm. an investigator, this is your job. And she's prevented officials from talking about it, of from releasing any information. So you've basically we've had to rely on sources to get all of this information because she has prevented officials from releasing anything. And she's not really been very honest with some of the parents that I've talked to. I don't understand the entire investigation. I don't understand how she's conducting her investigation or what she's waiting on or what she's looking for. I also think she's going to have a very difficult time in bringing criminal charges. I've talked to lawyers. I've talked to other officials in Texas. They, they all seem to think that she's going to have a very difficult time in bringing criminal charges. She could be pursuing it, but she doesn't really explain how she's pursuing it or what she's doing or if she's brought in any other investigators or any other assistant DAs. Um, She's refused to answer any of our questions. Um, But, you know, she keeps also, the other thing that's really interesting is she keeps pushing the timeline on when she's going to be done with her investigation. You know, we're now into her claiming she may be done by the spring or so. Um, with her investigation. And in some cases, she's told parents it's going to be really difficult to bring charges. In some situations, she says, I'm really working on trying to bring criminal charges. So it's 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 all over the place. And, I, and because she's not really speaking and because she sort of has been this person who's been getting in the way of information being released, I, I, have, I have some skepticism in terms of what she's doing. I think... I'm curious as to how the people in Uvalde feel, even other members of the police department. You know, it's a small place. Is there a lot of anger there at police leadership? Because, you know, from what I've read and from your reporting, I can tell it's, you know, it's not just the school police chief who, you know, was potentially in charge that day. No, right. It wasn't. I mean, the the blame goes all around. It goes to the Texas Department of Public Safety. It goes to Border Patrol. Who were the, who was who were there in mass? I mean, they were the largest agency there. It goes to obviously the Uvalde Police Department, and then some of the other local like constables and game wardens. There's some kind of like one-offs. These law enforcement officials in Texas, 
So the blame goes to everybody. There are nearly 400 kind of people and agencies, but the leaders that day from the sheriff's office as well, making no decisions, terrible decisions. I think the rank and file, I, I, I don't know that they necessarily think that they did anything wrong, right? Rank and file will tell you that they were just following orders. They have some issues with the leadership, but I also think that they're very, still very defensive of their actions that day. And listening to their interviews, I've listened to a lot of their interviews. They were all very defensive of what they did that day. Mm -hmm. And they just basically blaming it on everything that they knew at that moment, they felt they did the right thing. And then some to this day still feel that they didn't do anything wrong. Um, and that to me definitely shows that there's a problem. And for sure, I, I don't know what the local police department is going to do, but they have some, I think, based on everything that I've seen, some serious issues with some of their officers and some of the training and some of what they need to do. And they haven't really started to do it yet, um, but they're going to have a lot of work ahead of them. We spoke about how hard it has been to get the truth Uh, on this particular shooting. Is it normal to see that much dishonesty in the aftermath of a a shooting, or is this very particular to Evalde and the shooting here? No, I think it's very particular. I don't know that I've seen a situation, especially uh, this kind of shooting, this kind of situation, where there was so much infighting between agencies and mistrust and wrong information. And I've never seen anything like it. And it's clear it's very clear that people were trying to hide information, even though they will tell you that's not the case. But yes, initially, they were trying to hide information and not release certain things because they were hoping perhaps that it would just go away or that the media would just go away, you know, times blaming us for what was going on. Um, but I have never, never seen a situation where agencies were not working well together that we're not together on something because when i covered buffalo and other mass shootings like every agency stands together and they speak as one and the information is shared and everyone's on the same page here that that was not the case right and do we have more unanswered questions that we need to know about the uh, police response so yes i think there are some unanswered questions because there are some gaps in the communication of whether or not the Department of Public Safety, the Texas DPS, knew more than they've let on in the early stages. And they will say to you that they didn't, or maybe, well, we're not sure. But I think certainly that agency and understanding more of what they knew early on is still kind of unclear we kind of have an idea of what the Gavaldi Police Department knew. We know what the sheriff's office knew uh, and the school police chief knew. We know a lot about those agencies, but the bigger agencies and exactly what they knew, there was a lot of confusion. I have never seen a situation where there was more confusion on the scene and everything is chaotic in these situations, but this was beyond uh, anything else that I have ever seen, or certainly, I mean, I've talked to so many law enforcement officials and they're like, it's just crazy and nuts to think that there was such poor communication and so much of the information was not being shared. And I think down the line, maybe as, you know, 
all these investigations between the DOJ and the maybe the, the DA and maybe some I don't know maybe there'll be another investigation that we learn more information. A lot of what went wrong, I think, is out there now, though. But there are some some things that we still need to find out. During the Trump administration, you were based in Washington, D.C., and I think a lot of the big stories that you were known for focused more on the Trump White House and Justice Department fights and the, the Mueller investigation. Now you've moved to New York, right? Yeah. Are you doing a do you have a different beat or are is sort of, you know, crime and justice? It's the same. It's just where you're based out of. So it's the same. I mean, I, I wanted it's the same. Like, don't you're from, sorry, you're from New York, right? Yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, where, where in Brooklyn? I, Oh, Brighton Beach. Oh, Brighton Beach. Uh, do, do you know yeah. Tatiana, the club? Yeah, of course, on uh, <laughs> on the boardwalk. On the boardwalk, yeah. 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 yeah, I grew up there. And so, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I lived in D.C. Uh, I went there. Uh, well, CNN, when CNN first hired me as a producer, they moved me to D.C. Mm. And I lived there for a couple of months. And I just really wanted to go back to New York. So I came back. And then when the Trump and Mueller and all that stuff heated up, I went to D.C. to be part of the, the CNN team that covered that. Mm-hmm. And then once that was over, uh, once Mueller finished, I just, I really wanted to go back to New York. But if it wasn't for the experience in D.C. and what CNN did for me in D.C., and certainly the Trump and Mueller stuff, I mean, I don't know that I would be as successful as, as I've been. And giving me this opportunity to be on air and be a correspondent, and whatever. I mean, that's just, it's been, you know, I've been very lucky. But I, you know, I enjoy, for me, covering um, crime in general is something that I really, uh, I think I'm good at and I really enjoy covering. Um, sadly, it's all very bad stuff and tough stuff right. um, that I've had to cover. Um, but my, like, yeah, I mean, I just generally enjoy stuff outside of D.C., and uh, just quickly, um, I feel like the new regime under Chris Licht is it's a style of journalism that CNN wants to do that that favors what you do. Do you, do you feel comfortable under uh, under the new president? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. Look, I, I will say this to me, to me, I really feel like a reason why we've been able to do what we're doing and the reason why my team and the team that they put together here at CNN to work on Uvalde is really because of the leadership. And right. it was, Chris made a decision um, almost immediately that we were going to stay on this story and we were going to get to the bottom of it and we were going to figure out what was going on here because it was important. It was an important story to do. And I think his leadership, and I, I mean this wholeheartedly, I really do feel that his words in the days of when this happened in the days after did make a difference for why we stay on this story and why we've covered this story. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Shimon Prokipez on Mediaite.com.